We're going to look at the question, why does Jesus teach in opposition to the authorities um, this afternoon? And I, I want to um, in, start this off by asking you around the table. So, um, Stephen and Janet, you may want to talk to each other, but you may want to find another table to come to and share with others. Um, I want, to, I want you to think about two questions. I'll, I'll give you five minutes on each. I'll tell you when to move on to the second question. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll repeat the second question then. But the first of the questions is, for what reasons did Jesus come to earth? And I use the plural deliberately there. For what reasons did Jesus come to earth? And the second question why should we be surprised that Jesus teaches in opposition to the authorities? So for what reasons did Jesus come to earth is the first question to think about. And the second one, why should we be surprised that Jesus teaches in opposition to the authorities? Not why should he teach in opposition, but why should we be surprised about that? So um, I'll give you five minutes on, on the first one. Um, Five minutes on the second, and uh, and then we'll um, I'll come round with the microphone at that point. And is there anything first of all on that first question? For what reasons did Jesus come to Earth? Anybody want to, to share what you were discussing on the table on that one? For what reasons did Jesus come? Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Okay, so fulfilling the law and the prophets, anything else? Ask the fit over that one, uh, to fulfill the law as told in the Old Testament. Do you want to, can you say that so we can, so we can all hear, hear, hear your wisdom? Uh, well, ditto to that one, John, um, to tell everybody the fulfilment of the law as stated in the Old Testament was true and that Jesus had come to save all of us that want to be saved and will accept him into our lives. Thanks. Okay, so fulfilment, the cross, anything else? I think he also came to show us the Father. He talked about, you know, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it was like a visual representation on earth of what the Father is really like. Okay. Good. So representation of the Father showing us what God is like. And relationship to the Old Testament and so on. Okay, fine. And what about that second question of why should we be surprised that Jesus taught in opposition to the authorities. Did you have any ideas on that? We don't think we are surprised. We think that it was inevitable. Uh, it, the only surprise is that as children we were taught up how gentle Jesus, make and mild. And that's the only surprise. But as adults and Christians, we're not surprised. Now that's, a, that's an interesting one in terms of um, one of the questions that... I had thought of asking was um, from what you were taught when you were little 
um, what's your understanding of the personality of Jesus? And um, yeah, I can think exactly of the, of the picture my grandmother gave me um, and uh, of what Jesus looked like and, and this sort of rather sort of wishy-washy character who wandered around, wouldn't hurt a fly. Um, and then suddenly you, you read the overturning of the tables in the temple and, uh, and read some of the, the, the really gut-wrenching comments that he makes about certain other individuals in the, in the discussions with them. Okay. Um, that was really just to begin to get you thinking for where we're going to be headed this afternoon. I'm going to focus on Matthew's Gospel. And there are two reasons for that, really. Firstly is that the level of confrontation in Matthew is something that's fairly easy to map. Um, and it's almost the plot line in Matthew of a suspense as to when the, when the boil is going to be lanced, if you like, um, from the very early days in the gospel, where there is already beginning to be confrontation right through to what goes on in that period between Palm Sunday and Good Friday. And Matthew has that in spades, really, and it's, it's, it's perhaps the easiest one, um, a short notice to actually follow through. Um, the other reason for using Matthew, and, and it's a sort of more prosaic or selfish level, um, it's where I was getting to in my thinking for preaching um, at St. Luke's on Palm Sunday um, from Matthew's Gospel um, before I realized that I was actually going to be doing this this afternoon. So um, that, that, that's the reason why we're focusing on Matthew. Um, if I was going somewhere else to focus on an answer to this question, I think I'd go to John's Gospel because, again, there's, there's a, a, a thread... Um, through that of confrontation um, of Jesus speaking in ways which, which shook people, particularly those in authority, not least the toing and froing with Pilate um, and the, the discussions that he has. Um, I always love the line that, um, that Philip Glasper wrote into the Bible story um, for the Passion narrative when we did the Passion on the streets in Winchester. And it, the, the, the voices are still there for me from the actors who are taking part. Um, when Pilate says, and what is truth? Um, Jesus actually answers and just simply says, I am. And that there's just something in that, that sort of confrontation that happened at that point um, that I felt Philip had grasped what was actually going on under the surface, I think, there. However, that's by the by. Um, we're into Matthew. And if you were to break Matthew's gospel up into the last five days from Palm, from Palm Sunday through to Good Friday um, and the earlier part, the early part of the three years of Jesus' ministry, around one third of Matthew's gospel focuses on that last week. The other two thirds is looking at the you know, best part of three years. Um, and so it's interesting where he lays his focus and we see perhaps the question itself about Jesus teaching in opposition to the authorities is there in that last week but actually I want to show that it's something which was building through the whole of the gospel and as we look at how it built I think that begins to give us an answer to why Jesus spoke as he did Just before we do that, 
Well, actually, as part of that, I want to look at the, the, the opponents, first of all, very briefly. I then want to look in that two-thirds bit of the gospel, just to see that the, where the points are that conflict begins to arise. And then we'll do quite more, probably more, more quickly, actually, that last week. But again, trying to find an answer to that question of why does Jesus speak as he does in opposition to the authority. If you read through Matthew's Gospel, he makes reference to a whole variety of different parts of the Jewish leadership. So he mentions Pharisees and Sadducees and temple authorities. There's the collectors of the temple tax. There's the Sanhedrin corporately. There were differences between each of those, those, those groups. And in fact, some of them are diametrically opposed in terms of the theology as they understood it. Um, Pharisees and Sadducees just didn't get on with each other, but as we find it, they came into cahoots later on in, in, the, um, in, in that final week to actually um, debate with Jesus. However, I think that one particular commentator is correct when he writes that, that for Matthew, he's fairly indifferent as to what these different groups individually believed. He sees them more as, as a variety of different groups who came together, who disagreed with Jesus and wanted to put Jesus right. And Jesus responds to what they're doing. So two things to note about them. Firstly, that they represented the theological authorities of the day. If you wanted to know about a particular theological question that you had, you'd go along to the scribes and the Pharisees and they would, uh, or the Sadducees, and they would give you, they would give you the, the answer and tell you about it. So they represent the, the theological authorities. They would see themselves as being the guardians of the theology. And anything that goes outside of their theology is seen as being heretical and dangerous and needs to be stopped. And the second thing is that to a large extent, those authorities were in cahoots with the Roman authorities. It was an occupied land. Rome had the ultimate power and could do what it wanted. And basically, the leadership worked alongside Rome and said to Rome, if you don't want any riots around the place and if you want a nice, com quiet, comfort, comfortable life as, as being the, the procurator in this particular part of the empire, just let us get on and do our religion as we've always done it and as we want to, and we'll guarantee that there won't be any riots against Rome. So there was a sort of collusion going on there um, which gave them power to actually act, but they were always alongside, in a sense, protected by the Roman authorities in terms of what was going on. So what goes on in the earlier parts of the Gospel? Well, I guess the earliest confrontation in the Gospel in terms of Jesus with the ruling authorities of any sort is actually in a very well-known passage in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi come to Jerusalem and roll up to King Herod's court and say, we've come to see the one who is born king of the Jews. Now, that's not the sort of thing you'd say to Herod, who saw himself as king of the Jews. And we know his paranoid response 
in that particular thing. But what's for me is fascinating, and it almost bookends Matthew's gospel, is that title, the King of the Jews, is what was writ- that Pilate had written on the sign that was pinned to the top of the cross. So it's a theme that sort of holds itself right the way through. But there was confrontation there. When John the Baptist is preaching, and in a way his ministry works parallel with Jesus in some of this this area, I mean some of John's opening words in Matthew's Gospel are when he looks at the the Pharisees as they come down to to see the baptisms taking place in, in the Jordan, are, you brood of vipers, You've got it all wrong. You're going in the wrong direction. You're stopping people from entering a relationship with God because of what you're doing. Not exactly the most sort of comforting sort of words to to, to hear when you arrive and you're supposed to be in charge. And there's this guy in Camel's hair who's saying this about you. But there is that confrontation and it works on through and his confrontation then with the then King Herod resulting in, his, in John the Baptist's death. But he's challenging that authority there when he, he tells Herod off for what he's been doing with his brother's wife. And then in chapter 9, we, we read of the healing of a paralyzed man. Um, Matthew doesn't have him being lowered through the roof as the other um, writers do. But as this man is healed by Jesus... He looks at some of the Pharisees who are sitting in the synagogue watching him. And he says to them, you know, which is easier for me to do, to heal this man's paralysis or to forgive him his sins. And the very fact of Jesus saying, I'm going, I'm I'm in a position to say you are forgiven to this guy, really winds up the Pharisees at that point saying you're blaspheming by saying that because only God can forgive. So Jesus, you can't say that because you aren't, effectively, is, what is what's going on there. So the confrontation at that point, as we'll see later, continues, is a real focus on what Jesus' authority is. Where does it come from? How does he deserve to be listened to, if you like? And that's really where some of the conflict comes and where he begins to speak against those in authority where he has a different view to them. The temperature really hots up by the time you get to chapter 12 in Matthew. And it begins with that very innocent scene of the disciples feeling hungry as they wander through the cornfield and they pluck the ears of grain. And um, um, some of the religious authorities spot this happening. And immediately for them, the red lights are flashing. It's the Sabbath. And if you're plucking grain like that, just even to eat the the, the grain that's there, you're harvesting. And that's work. And work is not allowed on the Sabbath. So there's a very detailed way in which the law was being viewed and applied. Jesus challenges their narrow definition of what that law means. And he ups the ante by going into the synagogue and then healing someone. It's it's an interesting sort of sequence of confrontation that goes on. You can't do this on the Sabbath. Okay, well, I'm going to go and heal somebody on the Sabbath. No, that's wrong as well, because that's work also. And so the, the tension builds between Jesus and the authorities. Chapter 13... 
And it's at the end of chapter 12, after Jesus has done that, that we find the phrase, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill him. So there's that tension already building. But again, they're saying to Jesus, what authority have you got? We, we, we're the authorities here. How dare you say these things and claim this authority which is superior to ours? A bit later in that chapter as well, the Pharisees respond when Jesus heals somebody who's described as a demoniac um, of, of somebody who was deaf blind. And as Jesus does that, the crowds begin to ask, could this be the son of David? We'll come back to that phraseology a bit later on. Could this be the son of David? With all its resonance of Messiah, and the authorities then put the healing down to the work of the prince of evil. And they earn a rebuke from Jesus as they do so. And then bizarrely, having seen all of this, having seen Jesus healing, having been in confrontation over his teaching, they then demand that Jesus show them a sign, you know, to order as it were. Um, they do this again later on in the chapter as well, as if he, seeing somebody who's been healed from being deaf-blind and now able to hear and see wasn't sufficient. Give us a sign. And of course there he gives us the, the sign of Jonah, of one being in the, in the belly of the fish for, for three nights. Interestingly, it's the same demand that the later Herod makes when Pilate sends Jesus to Herod, having realized that Jesus was a Galilean. And Herod does exactly the same thing. Oh, great, I've always wanted to see him do something. Show me a miracle, Jesus. So that confrontation, that, that, that toing and froing of where is Jesus coming from, is there. A bit later in chapter 15, there's a more direct confrontation. The Pharisees condemn the disciples for not following the, quotes traditions of the elders in their washing of hands before meals. This wasn't to get their hands clean. This was a bit of sort of tradition they, they put for them to actually do beforehand. And Jesus' response is to challenge the way such traditions have been used as get-out clauses by the authorities, particularly in the care of elderly parents. Oh, no, but we've reserved this money for the temple, so we can't use that to support our parents. They're, they're going to have to look after themselves, was how they were operating. So Jesus is challenging those authorities at that point and saying think about what's going on think about how you are teaching think about what you are teaching and what the impact of that is and the disciples spot what's going on and there's this lovely sort of fairly obvious comment that's made after this confrontation has taken place and they're sort of walking away from it um, the disciples turn to Jesus and say do you realize the Pharisees were offended at what you said of course they were of course they were 
because Jesus was challenging where they were coming from on the grounds that by what they were doing and their so-called authority was having on people's lives. So others were being hurt because of their definitions and their traditions that they were speaking. And Jesus says, we don't want any of that. That's to be put to one side. And then in chapter 19, the Pharisees come to test Jesus. That's the phrase that Matthew uses in asking about divorce. And that actually was a hot topic between the different rabbis as to whether it was allowed, whether it wasn't, were there conditions, were there no conditions, what should happen, and so on. I think it was just, well, which side is he going to take? Because whichever one of us is here, we can accuse him of belonging to that lot who we don't get on with. Jesus takes them back to first principles in that particular discussion and actually ends up with some of the most powerful teaching on singleness that there is in the Gospels. That's really the first two-thirds of Matthew's Gospel. So there are sort of bits where there are confrontation and where Jesus speaks back and kicks back against what's going on. And the most common reason that the authorities challenge him is over what is Jesus' authority? Does he have it? Where does it come from? But there's something else that goes on in those chapters. We've talked a bit about some of the different aspects of why Jesus came. One of the ones which is very clear in Matthew's Gospel is Jesus saying, I've come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. I've come to inaugurate God's kingdom here on earth. When he heals, he says, the kingdom of God has come near you. When he speaks to others, he says, the kingdom of God is now amongst you. And that sense of God's rule now coming and establishing itself. Now, in a way, that's establishing his own authority because he's saying, this is the kingdom that I'm coming to bring. And it's God's kingdom. And it's God's kingdom live now, here on earth. God's rule in people's hearts. And that's where he's drawing his power from. And this is the breaking in of something that eventually will actually subvert the entire Roman Empire of God's kingdom coming. But the issue there is that if there is a kingdom coming, there is a king, and with a kingdom comes authority and rule. And by the way, we've got these religious authorities in Jerusalem who think they're in charge. And we've got Pilate and we've got Caesar who think they're in charge. But if this kingdom is coming, where does that leave them? And there's a cl- beginning to be a clash of kingdoms between the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew puts it, means the same thing, and the kingdoms of this world. And there's beginning then to be that tension between those different kingdoms which again are going to contribute to what goes on later. 
And so we come to that final week in Jerusalem. Matthew 21, in, um, in, in this, the, the version of the Bible I've got here, which is the, the NIV that we use here in church, um, has, you know, it's got these, it's, it's, it's sometimes helpful to have the, the headline um, lines across uh, the, each of the paragraphs or sections that come. Um, Matthew 21 is blatantly headed in, in this totally uninspired thing. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. Um, doesn't quite say that in the chapter, but it means it probably. Um, but it's interesting that here again we've got this kingdom clash. And as Jesus comes into Jerusalem, that's those signs of kingship, of his kingship, are there in spades. He comes on a colt. And there's an allusion to Zechariah's prophecy that your king comes riding you know, on, on a colt, on, on the foal of a donkey, and he comes in as king. Others who knew their scriptures that day on, on that first Palm Sunday may well have had their, their minds taken back to when King Solomon was crowned. Remember there was some toing and froing with um, David hadn't quite designated his successor, and Adonijah was, 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 was busy saying, oh, that's all right, no, that's all right. my dad said I'm going to be the one who's going to be king. And when that gets fed back to David and Solomon, David immediately says to Solomon, go down to the pool and then Nathan will come and will proclaim you as king. And Solomon rides into Jerusalem after that proclamation on David's mule. And so there's another imagery there of the kingship of Jesus as he comes in to Jerusalem. And the crowds cry out, son of David, that cry we've already heard. That very title recalled the king who had been given a throne and an inheritance that would never pass away. And that longing that the crowds had and and that Israel itself had for a king who would come and kick all, the, all these other pseudo-rulers out of the way and would be once again, they would be free and under the kingship of the one anointed by God. And so for the crowds, they can see something that's going on there. And again, as the authorities watched on, I can suspect that their hairs on the back of their neck were beginning to sort of crinkle and, and go stiff as they saw what was being said of Jesus. And if that happened for those authorities, where would their power go to then? And as you read through that that, um, particular chapter in Matthew, the ancient messianic psalms are never far from the surface. There's reference here to Psalm 128 for a start. And there's also the restoration of God's rule as intended, as we find in Psalm 8. As one of the more, as one of the oldest English translations has it, O Lord, our Governor, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And there's that sense of as the children play and sing in the temple courts about the greatness of Jesus. That sense of God's overall governorship and lordship is now being brought into play 
And it's through this person who's just ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a colt. As he goes into the temple court, Jesus displays something else as well because all of those money changers were in the court of the Gentiles. Israel was supposed to be a light to them, to point them to God. And they weren't even allowed even into the one bit of the temple area they should have been allowed into because all of this, this money changing and everything else was going on. And so Jesus is saying, no, this is a kingdom which is open to all. Whether they're Jewish background or Gentile background, they deserve to come to worship. And again, there's a bridling from the authorities at that point. By what authority are you saying these things? In one of the other synoptics, um, they turn to Jesus and say, tell the kids to shut up. They're making too much noise and we shouldn't allow them to do this. And you remember Jesus' response. You know, even if they stay quiet, even the very stones that are here will, will call out in praise of me. Creation itself responding to its king coming amongst them. Now again, can you sense the tension that must have been there for those authorities as Jesus continues to do this? He's demonstrating who he is as the king inaugurating the new kingdom. In a way, he doesn't have to, 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 to speak to criticize them and to, to challenge them. But out of that doing comes the, speech, the speaking as well. And then we find the next couple of chapters, or the next few chapters, are almost incessant in terms of one group or another of the leaders coming to Jesus in order to try and trick him into some way they can say, ah, you're a fake. And they do that in a variety of ways and they use their own theological backgrounds for doing it um, and they, they use a whole variety of other means as they come in that challenging. And as Jesus responds, it's as much in the parables he tells as in what he actually says that he drives his point home. And again, he's saying you've locked people out of the kingdom by your teaching. You've got it wrong, basically, is what he's saying to them. And because of the way in which you've drawn a very tight set of rules that you do this and don't do that, and you don't do that and you do do this, they're bound together and struggling. And people are being locked out of the kingdom because of it. And he goes on to say, but actually you've invented your own shortcuts. Think of the parable of the, of, of the wedding banquet, of the one who goes in there and is found to have sort of climbed over the fence without the wedding garment on. And Jesus says, you know, you've been trying to create these shortcuts so that you're okay, but nobody else is. But actually you're the ones who are going to get cast out as a result. It's a real confrontation, but it's done through a parable. And the, the, the aim of those, as Eugene Peterson beautifully describes it, is you hear this parable which is about a wedding banquet and so on, and you think, oh, that's fine, it's not about me. And you go away and you, you wander around and you, you think about that parable and suddenly explodes inside you that actually this is about what God is saying in a particular situation and is challenging the people. 
So there is that confrontation, there is that speaking against, but it's done because Jesus is longing for the kingdom of God to come real in people's lives. And to do that, they need to see God's rule and God's intentions, not the facade that's been put on that by the Jewish authorities of the time. But they keep coming back for more argument and desperate to try and find some way in. My great aunt used to settle down on a Saturday afternoon in front of the telly to watch the wrestling. It was quite a highlight of the week, but she she enjoyed doing that. But I think she enjoyed the tag wrestling most, you know, when when somebody's been knocked down and they say, get get, get a fresh fresh pair of legs and fresh pair of arms in to do the the next stage. And it has that sort of feel about it, if you read through the account of of the debates in, in, in Matthew. You know, the Pharisees come and they'll have a go at one thing and they go away crestfallen because they've been, been knocked out. So the Sadducees come in and they try their method of doing it and then they go away again because they've been, been, been flattened by what Jesus has said. So they, the Pharisees come back in and have another go and they get flattened and, 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 and so on in terms of the, the debates that go on with Jesus. And... Each of those times, it's interesting that Jesus' response is exactly the same as it was when he was tempted in the wilderness. He says, but what does it say? What is written? What is written? Go back to the source texts and you'll see that you're getting it wrong. Come back to what God was actually wanting you to do. What God was actually wanting in that relationship with you. Forget the traditions you have inherited. What was God wanting to do? Chapter 23 is full of those woes against the Pharisees. And yet again, we find that that merger of, well, I think the scripture says this, but there's this tradition which will weave round it as well. Now, there's elements of that where I've got sympathy with the Pharisees on. They were guardians of, of what had gone on. They knew about all that we've been reading about in Lamentations over these past weeks, of the way in which the people had thrown it away because they hadn't kept the law. And so one could understand why they were trying to say, well, there's this, but there's these other ones, so you don't really fall over right at the center. But in doing that, they were actually excluding people from being able to be part of the kingdom. Worse than that, they were saying, you're looking at the minutiae of that. You'd go and, um, and tell that guy off there because um, he hadn't tithed his mustard seed. Um, but you've lost sight of the big picture of justice. It's almost as if Jesus is going and saying, go back to what Micah has to write in chapter 6. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. That's what God asks from you. If you're doing that, you're getting it right. But if you're putting all these barriers up so that people can't even see that, then you're getting it wrong. And God weeps over that. In Matthew's Gospel, it's during Holy Week that Jesus stands looking out over Jerusalem. 
and he laments. He says, I've how long, how for many years have I longed to gather you in my arms as a, a mother hen gathers her chicks. I've longed for you to be there for me, but you haven't come. When I've sent you prophets and priests, you've got rid of them. And some of the parables talk about that as well from that week. And so again, he's expressing the great love that God has for us, but saying because of the way in which the teaching had developed, people were losing sight of that and failing to recognize that Deuteronomy doesn't begin with obey me so that I can love you. But Deuteronomy begins, I love you, therefore do what I want you to do. So Jesus is on a, on a mission, if you like, of correction, of resetting the focus onto God's love and God's mercy and God's direction. But there's something else going along, alongside it. Because in chapter 26, we see that the confrontation is as much about power and standing as it is the theology. And so we find that the Sanhedrin comes together to say, we've got to get rid of this person. We've got to find some way of doing this. But we better not do it during the Passover festival because otherwise that will have a really severe impact because it will create a riot if we do that. So we'll leave it till afterwards. And beautifully, Judas actually subverts that by going and saying, by the way, I can take you to him tomorrow night. And so... The power is, 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 is there as well of trying to use their power to get rid of Jesus at that point. And then there's the dubious um, legalities of the trial. In the midst of this, Jesus walks, assured of what he is doing. There's no doubt that he is in control through this. He's walking in a kingdom that's barked by humility, which results in triumph. Just read that great servant passage in Philippians 2 to see that. And it's a kingdom where God's reign enters people's hearts. So back to the question this afternoon. Why does Jesus teach in opposition to the authorities? I guess in simple terms, because he's the king. And what he says goes. There is a clash that's inevitable because his kingdom is a kingdom which brooks no rivals. And as such, it's a threat to any who think they hold power. That's as true today as it was then. Think of... um, Archbishop Helder Kamara back in the, in the 70s in the far right-wing state in, I think it was Brazil, where he was um, archbishop. And he said, when they see me helping the poor, they say I'm a saint. When I ask why the poor are there, they call me a Marxist. And I'm on the, the, I'm on the terror list as far as they're concerned in government. 
So that challenge to power is always going to create friction and so on. But this kingdom which Jesus is ushering in is one which comes from the humility of the cross, the Father's power of the resurrection. It doesn't come from economic, political, or military might. It's a kingdom where God's rule comes to rest on individuals here on earth, here now. I draw a halt to what I'm speaking now, and if you want to start, I, mean, I, th- I don't know what sort of time do you usually finish, I haven't been involved before. Um, if I give you another, another 15 or 20 minutes, just to, to 15 minutes to, to chat around the tables, is that okay? Um, two, two questions, that don't, you may just want to take one of them. The first one is one for us to look at ourselves. Where have we become guilty of isolating aspects of scripture and merging them with traditions so that we provide stumbling blocks to those who want to come to Jesus? Where have we done what the Pharisees did, in other words? Where are we creating stumbling blocks by what we do and say? And the second one, which is slightly different, we do live with the clash of kingdoms, each one of us in our own lives and in the society in which we live here in the UK. So how do we navigate that continuing clash of kingdoms? Now I'll leave you to decide whether you want to look at both of them or just one of them. So the first one, where have we become guilty of putting stumbling blocks in the, in the face of those who want to come to follow Jesus? And the second one, how do we navigate that continuing clash of kingdoms that we live with? And I'll draw us together in about 15 minutes' time um, and just close us in prayer. Okay? Okay.